Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. Very excited about our guest this week. He's a longtime friend and colleague. He also, to my surprise, is a longtime meditator and has written a new book about the the rescue of those Thai boys in that cave was an awful story that turned into an incredible story. And a lot of you tweeted me about the fact that the boys who were stuck in that cave, their, their, the coach who was with them taught them how to meditate. We have a lot more information about that. The story uh, Matt has just written. Matt was over there in Thailand when the story broke and has just written this great book uh, about the stories behind the story that we didn't know until now. And and part of that is meditation. And so we we not only talk with Matt about his meditation career, but also the meditation that took place in that cave. And and uh, it's so interesting to know that my friend Matt, who you know, suffers with a lot of the same stuff I suffer with, uh, you know, work-related anxiety in this high-pressure career that we share, um, that meditation has been helpful for him and all these years I didn't know. Okay, Matt's coming up. But uh, first, um, I want to take your voicemails. Before that, just a quick point of business. Um, Diana Winston, uh, she hasn't yet been on this podcast, but she's a, a fantastic meditation teacher, and she is now one of our new teachers on the 10% Happier app She's the director of mindfulness education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. So she not only knows how to teach meditation, has been practicing and teaching since the 90s, but she also has a real scientific mind and um, knows a lot about uh, using meditation with children. And so she's going to be an incredible resource for the app. So another reason to go check us out. She's got two new uh, meditations up there right now. Uh, Diana Winston will be on the show at some point soon, I hope. Okay, let's do your voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Casey. I just started mindfulness practice uh, probably within like the last three to six months. I do it at night to help me sleep, to kind of calm my mind down. And I just am kind of curious about what your thoughts are on that. I've only tried it a few times in the morning, and I find guided meditation help me the most to kind of get in the zone. I guess there are some nights where I don't do it because I think, oh, I'm just too tired to, or I'll probably sleep okay. But yet I think it would be better for me to, to do it on a more regimented schedule. So I guess I just kind of want your thoughts on what you think about doing it for sleep. So hopefully that makes sense. Thank you so much. Uh, my brilliant producer, Ryan Kessler, chose the the voicemails wisely this week because we're going to be talking about uh, meditation for sleep with uh, our guest this week, Matt Gutman, who's been using it for that purpose. So big yes. I think it's a great idea. In, initially, I was um, a little reluctant about meditation for sleep because you know, meditation is designed to wake up in the, in the grandest sense of that phrase, uh, the Buddha it means, you know, the awakened one. The whole point is to wake up to the reality of your existence, stop sleepwalking through your life, et cetera, et cetera. But look, if you're going to live successfully, you do need to sleep. You do need to sleep. You need to uh, have uh, rest or you're not going to be able to function well. And I have found in my own experience, especially recently, oddly enough, where I, I've actually been adding um, – some meditation before I go to bed. Not not even, I mean, I do a little bit as I'm lying down, but I actually have started every night before I go to bed stretching. And and I'll talk about Matt. You'll hear me talk about Matt uh, about this with Matt. Um, stretching and then sitting for a while. And I have found that combination, plus a few little practices I do as I'm lying down in bed, to be really helpful. There, are, I'm As you know, I'm not a big fan of panaceas and magic bullets and all that stuff. So I don't think it's anything like that. But I do think it's a really good thing. And, you know, I know just now as a budding entrepreneur with this little company that, that we, we have an app uh, that I talk about a lot on the show, the, the, we are, the demand we see among our users for sleep-related meditations is undeniable, so much so that we now have a whole tab, a whole section that's prominent, uh, uh, that's filled with sleep meditation. So so I think, yes, it's great. It's a great thing to do. Um, obviously, I'm a pretty 
big proponent of meditation. So I think if you wanted to try it in the morning or other times as well, I think it's a more more the better as long as it's not messing up your life. But um, yeah, unreserved, yes, try meditation before bed. And, and like you, I too have experienced on the nights where I feel like I'm going to be fine without it and then don't do it, then I get in bed and I'm tossing and turning. Keep it going. Here's number two. Hey, Dan, I was wondering if Bob Roth taught you TM, and if so, what do you think of the practice? Thanks. Well, I can keep this answer short. Not yet. And that's not it's not Bob's fault. Bob's standing offer to teach me TM has been out there on the table for years, actually, even before I had him on the podcast. And I actually do, I promise, I'm not lying, plan to take him up on this. Um, and, I, you know, I have TM as a practice, whatever you think of, you know, if you go back and listen to my interview with with Bob, we have a very forthright, and he was not defensive about this. I thought admirably not defensive. Um, there are critics of the TM organization, but whatever you want to say about the organization, you you you, you can't. I don't think there's much to be said uh, about. You know, I don't think there's a strong argument for the disutility of of the basic practice that they teach in TM, which is millennia old. Is it millennia old? Millennia, whatever. It's been around for thousands of years. So I'm interested in this Vedic mantra meditation and specifically in whatever innovations they've come up with in the TM school. So, yeah, I do want to do it. I'm just, you know, I don't know, lazy, overscheduled, one of the two, both. But we should say that our guest today, Matt Gutman, does practice TM and has, and you're going to hear his story, he has for a long time. So uh, we'll get to him in just a moment. First, though, I want to give you our number for voicemails, it's 646-883-8326, 646-883-8326. Give us a shout. All right, so the guest this week, Matt Gutman. As I said at the top, I've known him for a long time. I've always been incredibly fond of Matt Gutman. He's just a great person and a great reporter. He's a senior national reporter um, here at ABC News. He's been doing it for quite a while. Before that, he was at ABC News Radio, and he's written a book called The Boys in the Cave, which is about the rescue of those Thai teenagers. Um, it, it turns out it was much more perilous than 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 we even knew. And, of course, there's a, a big meditation subtext to this story. I apologize from the outset because you're going to have to listen to a little bit of a love fest because every time Matt and I get together – that's just how it is. Um, but uh, he's his personal story, about which I knew very little, is really powerful. And then the story that he uncovered uh, from the cave is also incredible. So here we go. Here's Matt Gutman. My man. Great to have you on the podcast. It's so good to be You're here. You're so handsome. Um, yeah, I've been calling, just for the listeners, I've been calling Matt Gutman my man crush for more than a decade. I first met you when you were, in, when you were a radio reporter in Correct. Jerusalem for the ABC News Bureau. And uh, here you are, your big time correspondent. Since we have, since you, this is the place for rabbit holes, I'm going to yes. go down a couple. Um, go down a rabbit hole. Before, so I've seen Dan do some amazing things. First, we met in um, the north of Israel, actually, because Israel was bombarding Hezbollah. I think it was 2005 or six. Six. Um, and Dan anchored. It was the first time I saw him anchor an entire world news without a prompter off the top of his head. <laughs> I did that? Yeah. And that as doesn't a, sound like me. As a, as a, you know, a guy who just started in radio and was a print reporter, it was an entirely different skill set that I didn't know even existed. And I just couldn't believe that somebody could do that without hemming and hawing and umming. Um, and then watching you do the same thing from Haiti after traveling with you that entire Sunday and watching just going through the rubble and seeing the bodies that we saw um, and the pain and the suffering that we saw and then put together this cogent, beautifully written um, show in about 10 minutes was one of the things that inspired me to really push to go from radio to TV because I realized there was so much that could be done um, outside of you know the very confined spaces of uh, network radio that I was working in. So it's very kind of you to say. Yeah. I recall having spent time with you in the Middle East and then in Haiti and then also just seeing you around in ABC, you were in Miami, but you occasionally come to New York, browbeating you all the time, both in the field and in the office. You got to go on TV. And you were always really, like, shy about it. And then, you know, the oil spill happened in the Gulf, yep. and then you were off and running, and you never looked back. Yeah, pretty much the goal. What was your hesitation? I actually, there is a very good reason. I, I tried at one point, but um, 
An executive at ABC who's no longer here told me I looked heavy on TV. What? Yes, true story. This is a podcast some of our listeners may never have seen <laughs> your your likeness before. I exhort listeners to go do a Google image search on you. Heavy would be the last word that yeah. would come to mind. I may have weighed about 10 or 15 pounds more then, but I... I heavy, Did that get in your head? Are you now, like, obse- uh, obsessive about, like, dieting and exercise as a consequence? No, I was always obsessed with exercise. <laughs> I was a wrestler in high school. I okay. played... All I did was play sports, so I was a meathead. Um, but, yeah. So, anyway, it happened, and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to report for ABC on multiple platforms, including ABC News Radio... Where we're sitting right now. We're sitting right now. We're in the radio studio. Which offered me the platform to do the kind of things I do, which was, you know, hard-nosed reporting and really getting into the meat of the story at the Gulf oil spill. And it's through that actual reporting that the TV side picked me up and said, hey, that guy's not only a good reporter, but, you know, he looks okay. Let's put him on air. And so I, you know, Diane Sawyer was the first person Mm -hmm. to put me on World News and uh, David Muir put me on World News Weekend. So I was... I was very lucky. Yeah. But, you know, also being exposed to people like you early on who, you know, just thought, yeah, give it a shot. Offered me encouragement. I've kn- so, so I think we now established that we've known each other for a while. I've And there, there's great affection for all of you watching. That's that. Clearly. Listening, listening. listening. Is anybody watching? watching I don't know. Maybe, oh, yeah. People are in the other room watching yeah. us. We should and say there's, there's, a, there's a glass... Uh, wall between us and the um, and the control room, and in there is Matt's wife, Daphna, who was a producer for ABC News and was d- driving around in the war zones of nor- northern Israel uh, with me when I yep, met you. Exactly. I remember saying after meeting you, "Okay, yeah, this you should marry this guy. You have oh, my permission." Very, no, that was very kind of you. She didn't really care what I thought, no. but. Um, testament to her. She anyway, doesn't care what anybody thinks. She's a tough cookie. Long way of saying I've known you for a long time and I didn't know until we spoke on the phone recently that you actually had a reasonably extensive or long relationship with meditation. So how, how yeah. did that come about? Um, when I was 12 years old, my parents, it was the summer of 1989, and my parents, you know, they were hippies. They grew up in, in the generation of the late 60s and early 70s. My father got lucky and got out of Vietnam in in the lottery. Um, my mom went to Bennington College, you know, and they'd always been interested in doing things that are different. And I think it was, they were also going through a crisis in their marriage and, and uh, we were living in suburban New Jersey and they wanted something different. And so they, ex- they, they hoped that maybe doing TM, Transcendental Meditation, was something that the whole family could unify around. Um, and find a sense of togetherness with. Um, and maybe it would make us happier, saner, healthier people. And so I did, I forgot how long the course is, but I went to Madison, New Jersey, where, you know, we did the whole Maharishi Ayurveda uh, course, and uh, I learned about the, uh, the what's it called? The, the, the subconscious, the unified subconscious. What's it called? Come on, Dan. Uh, I'm not an expert in TM. Uh... The... Unified the Oh, my God, the unified field. Anyway, basically. Unified field? Yeah, it's something like that. I was 12, so it's been a while since I took the course. But we've had a lot of TM folks on this podcast, so if you want to learn more about it, go listen to the Bob Roth episode. He's the head of the David Lynch Foundation, Big Muckety Muck within TM. So anyway, we're not counting on you for an encyclopedic knowledge of of the tradition. But what stayed 30 years later is my mantra and... You know, the, the very specific, which is very a-specific method of getting into the meditation, right? So in, in TM, you don't want to be on a beat or a cadence when you are saying your mantra. You want it to be almost arrhythmic, which is a supremely difficult thing to do because naturally everything in our bodies is almost rhythmic, right? Our breaths, our heartbeat, almost everything we do mm-hmm. has a beat or a rhythm. So I've always struggled with that in my practice. But, and I've also adopted more mindfulness methods. And so depending on how much time I have, I do different things. If I have a whole half hour, which almost never happens anymore, or 20 minutes, I will do old school TM. So I do a couple of minutes to breathe into it. And then I do my mantra, which I'm not allowed to tell anybody in the world. That was one of the things that kind of got me psyched up about it because, <laughs> you know, it's a secret. Only you know your mantra. And, they, and in TM, they make a whole... It, 
ceremony about revealing to you your mantra, and it's you know handed down to you from the Maharishi himself or his people or whomever or some database. I don't know, <laughs> but it was really cool at the time. And you know, yeah. I I remember once, like twenty years later, so you, I, you never told like your wife. My your mom. Mind? My wife doesn't know it. You don't know. My mom does. Because she was the one who really was my meditating buddy at the time. Okay. And still sort of Were you is. the only child? No. I have an older sister. But okay. she was already off in college. She was She's five and a half, five years older. Okay. So okay. she wanted no part of it and went off to school and uh, I never did TM. So you took to it. Even though you were 12 years old and your parents were kind of forcing you to do it, you actually took to it. We did it together. And then tragically, actually, it was the, that's the end, the end of that summer – my father was killed in a plane crash just oh, a few no. months after we did uh, this course altogether. Um, and so that was – my mom actually really encouraged me to keep meditating um, as a way to not lose my mind entirely because we were all very close to complete madness with grief and mourning. Um, and so we meditated a lot. Uh, sometimes, you know, summers later, my family members made fun of me a little bit. Um, but I, I kept doing it. And it's well, some, why, why didn't they make fun of you? Because it was so odd, you know, for a 12, 13, 14-year-old to periodically meditate and take a few minutes in the – you know, this is the very early 1990s. And it's – you know, today if you had your 14-year-old kid go to a room and quietly sit and meditate, people would accept it and probably encourage it. But back then, you know, when you're dealing with conventional family members, that is so weird, man. What are you doing? Uh, you were ahead of your time. Uh, yeah, but it sounds like the habit was forged in some really intense emotion. Do you know what's funny? That I, uh, until this podcast, until you and I sat down, I never actually associated the two things. Uh, I didn't remember because I'd buried the memory of my father's death in so many different layers of grief and mourning that the two periods were so closely linked in time that it was really only a month and a half or two between, you know, the July, August that I took this course and September 25th when he was killed of 1990. For a 12-year-old boy, that kind of thing has to be incredibly difficult. I can only imagine. Yeah. I'm sorry. I actually didn't know that story. For a 40-year-old man, it's still difficult. Yeah. You know, you never, you never get over that kind of grief. And I'm actually feeling emotional now because it's funny that, you know, Dan Harris sitting here with me, a man who I've known for years, could actually make me feel emotional about something that is almost 30 years in the past. Um, but every time you look into something, even to a moment of grief and mourning like that, and to severe trauma, in a different way, it can elicit emotions that you didn't expect you'd stumble upon. Absolutely. And I was just guessing, but there's, it's got to be – fatherhood for you has to be an interesting endeavor because you have two kids, a son, yeah. a son and a daughter. The poignancy, has to, I would imagine, is there given what you went through. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm only months away from being the age my father was when he was killed, um, which is also kind of a mind trip. Yeah. Um, he was, how old are you? He was, I'm, gonna, I'm almost 41 and he was barely 42. So, yeah, it's, and you know, I, I also have a daughter who's five and a half, almost six years older than my son. Um, the similarities between the kids are amazing because my daughter, like my sister, is more introverted and shy. Um, my son is a total extrovert and outgoing and walks up to strangers at four years old. What's your name? <laughs> I'm, I like your shirt. I swear. <laughs> my wife's laughing in the other room. Um, yeah, so it's funny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the meditation thing it's morphed into different things the older I got and in different time periods but um, it's in some ways a touchstone that I always come back to and that I've had other experiences that brought me back to it so as well. a lot of people I talk to on the show who who started meditating young the arc that I often hear is you know it's a it's part of their DNA because they started so young and I, I think in your case probably part of your DNA not only because it started young but because as we've established it was kind of introduced at such an intense moment in your life but all but often folks come in and say uh, you know there are long periods of time where I'm a lapsed meditator but it doesn't mean that the effect is gone is that is that similar to what's happened with you absolutely but it's it's another it's another arrow in my quiver because I'm What's in my DNA is being a complete spaz. 
<laughs> I am anxious. I am self-conscious. I am nervous by nature. I am high energy. I am everything that meditation is not, which is why it's so good for me when I do it, right? Well, you just like sound like you, your average TV reporter. I mean, Dan, you know, you one of your seminal, seminal experiences was having a panic attack on air. And I've never said this to anyone, certainly not on broadcast, but since it's you, I still have panic attacks all the time when I'm going live. Really? How do you? I've never seen you get nervous on the air. Oh my god! I have full-on pulse racing, tunnel vision. Wow! Palpitation. How do you get through it? Fear. I don't know. I just grit, grit or I, I don't know what it is. And sometimes I stumble, and that's the only thing that causes me to stumble. Is not because I don't know what I'm going to say. It's because I get so nervous that you know I can't control it. Even now. Yes, absolutely. So I all the time. I get nervous all the time too. So just that, that was not said with any judgment. It was, it was said with sympathy, empathy, more all of it. It's such a weird feeling. One of the things that I think you're one of the few people who would understand what I th- I'm going to attempt to say is that you're out there, especially when you're in the field, and it's just you're standing there. There's nobody else around except for you and a, like a bored camera crew, and maybe your producer is looking at her phone or his phone, and all of a sudden the anchor of the evening news or Good Morning America says, here's ABC's Matt Gutman, and then it's just you with control of the national airwaves. And you can have a teretic outburst. You can do whatever you want. And all of this little imp comes into your mind and starts giving you terrible suggestions. And then you start thinking about how many people are watching, but you can't see them. and But you know they're watching and your bosses are watching. And like all of that stuff just courses through your mind. And then for me, often it turns into like very difficult mental experiences. So there, there are two impulses, right? There's the impulse to just say what you know. You already know how to say it. And the other one is don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess yeah, up. Yeah. And the don't mess up one often is more powerful than the other one. And for me, it's not necessarily that that many people are watching. It's the expectation of perfection, mm. right? If you have 15 seconds to speak on national TV and the great David Muir, who is truly a savant and completely unflappable, tosses you the ball and says, Matt, and you know that you've got to be perfect, or Robin Roberts, or George Stephanopoulos, or any of the greats, or Dan Harris. Um, for me, that's the hard part. And one of the things that I've actually tried to calm myself before, not I've tried a lot, is is mindfulness. You know, there are all sorts of different methods, but one of them I have is um, actually somebody who is a, a, a hypnotist taught this to me, is, you know, imagine that you have a string and then there are five knots and you breathe in at the top of five and you exhale as slowly as you can to get to four and then inhale again at four and exhale to get down to three and, and so on and so forth. Do you go behind behind a tree when you're doing this? No, I don't actually hold the string. You do it in your mind. But you're doing the breathing. Yeah, but I just do it. You can do it and like keep your eyes open and just sort of imagine it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's why meditation, mindfulness are not a panacea. I mean, that's what you describe. It makes your life better but it's not going to solve every problem, and it doesn't always help me. But it's definitely something that I've tried. It doesn't always work, but I do try to sort of calm myself through breathing before this. And sometimes I'm totally fine, and I'm like, I got this. But sometimes you never know, and you start to get really nervous. This is a hard, maybe impossible question to answer since there's no control group here. But do you have a sense of what your life would be like if you didn't have these practices? Um, no. I, I really don't. I don't. I don't. I can't. It's been so long that I've had them. I mean, could I be any more of a spaz? That would be a scary <laughs> thing if if I had was racked by more anxiety and nerves than I am now. But maybe that's that would be the case. I don't know. How consistent are you? Uh, you were about to say something. I apologize. I'll ask this question. No, soon. it's just you know we we're talking about you know the the tools in your arsenal or the weapons yeah. in your arsenal in terms of meditation. Uh, the other thing is that when I can't sleep. You know, I, I just deploy it in all sorts of different methods. I don't have an, a very um, consistent practice. But when I can't sleep, that's where I go. I begin to meditate. And as anybody who practices knows, one of the best ways to fall asleep is to start your practice. Yes. Sometimes it's very inconvenient. Right. And sometimes it's super convenient. Exactly. So when you're having trouble falling asleep, do you go to the mantra or do you do a mindfulness, sort of awareness of breath type of practice? It depends how uh, urgent my sleep requirement is. but um, Which one is better? A more surefire way to get there is to do my whole practice. So you do the breathe up and then I start doing 
the uh, the mantra. But, you know, I'm generally too impatient. So I'm like, I'm just going to go straight for the mindfulness and do some breathing exercises. Um, I think both work. I've, I have trouble sleeping sometimes, and sometimes I'll use medical uh, interventions. But uh, one thing that I found really helpful, because I don't like to take medicine, is I will stretch. Huh. And then I will sit and meditate. And I will. I've, it's not uncommon for me after stretching and then meditating to get really sleepy. And then, and then I went, as I lay down to bed, I will do this exercise taught to me by a guy named Sean Acor, A-C-H-O-R, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's a really smart guy. He's written a bunch of books. And he says if you spend a couple minutes every day reviewing in your mind the things that you're grateful for that happened today – I found that the combination of those three things, nothing is surefire, but that's about as close as I've found. Those three things and an ambient, for sure. (laughs) Yes. And as my dad used to say when I was little and unable to sleep and would come in and complain to him, he would say, bend over and run as fast as you can into the wall. Yeah, that's the the kind of childhood I I had. The one thing that's great, though, (laughs) but I want you to go back for one sec to remind me and and maybe our listeners, your listeners. So it's – remember how many – Good things that happened to you. In the How day? many things are you grateful for? Grateful for that happened today. He says love just that. three. Just do three. I think he says three, but it's really just listing off in your mind the the the, the key variable. I actually had done a my own little thing that I had made up, which was as I was going to bed every night, I would kind of do this cheesy thing of list off the things I'm grateful for. But yeah. they were always the same things. Right. And I, I felt that it did help me sleep. But Sean said the research shows – Sean's done some of this research – that shows actually in order to have a true measurable benefit on general populations, it really helps to focus on things that happened today because then it trains the mind, the brain, to be sort of scanning for good news. I love that for a couple of reasons. One, because it's super easy to apply, and that's something that I'm going to use for sure. But it's also something that I can see myself teaching to the kids because it's so easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, my 10-year-old could totally do that because she can never fall asleep. Yeah. And even if it doesn't help her fall asleep, it reinforces the things that she's grateful for and you know, will lift her spirits a little bit. I really like that. I mean, I wish I could take credit for it. It's been very useful. And I've just well, thank found- Sean for us all. I will. Um, uh, actually, I've, I'm kind of forcing him to be my friend, so I will definitely do that. <laughs> um, but I think for you as a grown-up, those three practices p- mush together. Because if you're rushing well, – I'm just going to speak from experience. When I'm rushing to go to sleep, it's almost a guarantee I will not. Uh-huh. And so pushing those three together and just deliberately slowing down and saying, okay, however much sleep I get, I'm going to get. I can't control it. But I can do these three things together, and I think I'll up my odds of sleeping. Because there's something about sleeping that's similar, falling asleep, that's similar to meditation, which is it involves letting go and a, sur- a sort of surrender. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I'm off on a tangent here, but I found that those things were useful. It might be for you. I'm going to go on another tangent since we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, another method that I use, not that anybody cares, and I'm not like I'm like the worst meditator. I know everybody out there. I mean, and we don't judge. But another thing that I use that I just talking about things you're grateful for that actually just makes me happy. And this is not getting to a a more relaxed place or whatever it is. And this sort of happens organically too. The image of my children's smiling faces comes into my mind, and I sort of meditate mm-hmm. on that, and that is one of the most joyous things. Whenever I'm feeling really down, and maybe that is a gratitude thing because I am grateful mm-hmm. for them. So and It's just a, a beautiful image. It just makes me happy in my core. Absolutely. Actually, so there's a way to kind of formalize what you're describing. There's a I just did a nine-day silent meditation retreat of a specific <laughs> – I know you're, you're laughing because I'm ridiculous. But um, there's a specific kind of meditation. It's got a Buddhist name, M-E-T-T-A, metta, which is often translated into the supremely annoying word of loving kindness. But you can actually translate it into hmm. a different word, which is friendliness. Now, friendliness is an incredibly valuable skill. And – it should be omnidirectional. Now, the, arguably, the most important person you should be friendly to is you, because that will impact how you show up in every other place in the world. So this practice, again, 2,600 years old, the way it's often taught, and it was taught on this retreat I just did, was you visualize people, including yourself, your children, 
difficult people, neutral people, everybody, and send them good vibes through the mental repetition of phrases like may you be happy, may you be safe, et cetera, et cetera. The trick is, uh, the way it was taught on the retreat is start with an easy person. So you're already doing that. You're starting with your kids. Mm -hmm. And you actually can formalize it by starting with your kids and sending and sending them these phrases kind of explicitly in your mind. And then as soon as that kind of juice is built up, zoop, you put in a picture of Matt Gutman. Oh. And send it to Matt Gutman. And, and then it changes Ding. your inner weather. And Interesting. That will, and then you can tr you can grow from there to maybe your wife or uh, a difficult colleague or somebody, a neutral person who you overlook all the time at the dry cleaners, and then maybe send it to all living beings everywhere. This is the classical progression within the, the Buddhist uh, within the Buddhist tradition. So actually, you're kind of like doing the first step of this. That might be an interesting thing for you to... I found it to be an incredibly useful practice because as goofy and gooey as it is on some level, one of the things that I really noticed about my own personal practices is it's suffused with aversion. So you can mindfully note the arising of anger or impatience or restlessness, and there's, it's supposed to be non-judgmental. But if actually you're paying close attention, you kind of just want that thing to go away. And if you can change your inner weather to a friendly environment where anger arises and you're like, come on, let's hug it out. You and anger are hugging it out uh, metaphorically Yeah, here. I got it. Then you are so not owned by the anger. And the difference and the multiplier effect that can have in how you show up in the world is, in my mind, in just incredible. So funny because Daphne has known me longer than I've you, I've known Daphne longer than I've known you, and she's in the other room listening. She must be thinking, "What happened to this, this dude? Like he used to be cool." No, but I, I want to just <laughs> and and I want to. There are a couple of things I want to touch about on what you said because that was very brilliant, Dan esque, and that was sort of the quintessential Dan. But there are also some practical benefits to doing that to meta, which you translate as friendliness, right? My general behavior is super friendly. Like, I barely overlook, and I'm not saying this is, I'm not the kind of person who overlooks anyone. No, that's true. I can vouch for I that. say hi to everyone, yes, you do. right? And that's, like, my thing. We can talk about the various psychoses involved with my, <laughs> you know, craziness about that. But there's a practical benefit. When you are nice to people, good things do happen to you. That's true. If you are nice to a cab driver, which I typically am, and you forget something in their car... They are more likely to stop mm -hmm. and give you your wallet or yes. your phone that you've left yes. in there, um, all over. And you know it is this loving kindness. It, it does reverberate back to you. But think about so it's not only yeah. Think about what you said before about the two voices in your head when you're doing a live shot. One of them saying, oh, just say what you want, uh, say what you know, and the other is saying, don't screw it up, don't screw it up. And I'm questioning how friendly you are to yourself. And that, I think, is the value of this practice. I think that was beautifully put. I think many of us are not friendly enough to ourselves. And yes, that would be wonderful if I were friendlier and I will work on that. I have a question. Yeah. Well, is, you have um, a book. At some point, we're going to talk about your well, book. Well, I'm going to yeah. give you the perfect segue. Okay. So is metta the same thing as vipassana? Because no. Okay. Well, well because uh, when you when, – in Thailand – so I just did this book, right, and which you're going to introduce in a sec. But um, – they said vipassana is loving kindness. Like that's how they define it. Yeah, I spoke too soon. So I, I'm not sure what I'm about to say is accurate. So vipassana meditation, I think vipassana translates into insight. Mm. I think that uh, I think I'm right about this. And traditionally, within the Buddhist tradition in Thailand, they're part of what's called uh, Theravada Buddhism, old school Buddhism. The first sort of there are several schools mm -hmm. of, of Buddhism. The Theravada is the oldest school, and and that's where I come out of too. So Vipassana generally, when as I understand it, when that term is used, it means insight meditation, which is basically, you know, there are many ways to practice it, but one the primary way it's practiced is watch your breath coming in and going out and every time you get distracted you start again but it is often paired with metta practice now i don't know if metta is considered not vipassana or it's considered to be a part of a package but the two are taught together in the tradition 
at least the one that I've grown up in. And there's a reason for that, uh, especially in the West, where we are really hard on ourselves in meditation. There can be an unfriendliness that creeps in in a very prominent way. And so taking the edge off of that through metta is really important. Also, it's very hard to be happy if you're being a jerk all the time. Well, just what you're saying, you know, we are so judgmental in our society and we are so success-obsessed, yeah. right? So that even when we meditate, we feel that we have to meditate well. <laughs> yes. totally defeats you, the purpose. We feel like we have to win at meditation. <laughs> and you know, I'm speaking from experience here, you know, um, and, and it's just a losing proposition. More 10% happier after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Back now with my colleague, ABC's Matt Gutman. Let's just talk about Thailand. So you, I, you, I can't believe how fast you wrote this book, and I want to talk about the process in a second, but you've written a book about uh, an event that feels like 100 years ago given the speed of the news cycle these days, but it actually was like just a few months ago, was. which was the rescue of those adorable boys uh, in the Thai cave. Right. Um, so, no, go sorry. ahead. You were right there for it. I want to hear everything. Right. So uh, um, early July... 20, I guess this summer, 2018, it feels like a century ago, but it's not. Um, these 12 youth soccer players and their coach, so 13 people in all, uh, were discovered having been marooned, got lost in this cave. They had been there for 10 days. These two middle-aged, pasty, white, wear black socks with sandals, British divers who happened to be the very best in the world at cave dive rescues and who happened to have all of their training in the miserable, murky, dark, cold type of conditions that were found in this particular cave in Thailand, so they were perfectly suited, discovered the boys. They're like, oh my God, they're alive! And that triggered this unbelievable rush of journalists to Thailand because everybody thought they were dead and suddenly became the story of the summer. And over the next week or so, those divers, the Thai government, U.S. Special Forces, um, and others 
racked their brains to figure out how the heck they're going to get them out. And nobody really knew how. Um, the divers themselves, once they saw how deep in the cave they were, which was like over a mile and a half, um, which doesn't seem that far, but a mile and a half of, of scuba diving <laughs> in, you know, uh, sometimes the cave was no higher than this table, right? So they're... To like three... No, like two and a half feet. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, you think about it, a two-year-old, basically the height of a two-year-old. Um, and they're, so they're squeezing through these things, and there's stalactites and stalagmites and jagged rocks that are tearing at them, whacking their heads. Um, and they just couldn't believe how far into the cave these boys were. What had happened is that monsoon rains hit, but this year in Thailand, because of climate change, was wetter than normal, uh, about three feet wetter. And the mountain which is called the Sleeping Princess, uh, which normally absorbed these kinds of monsoon rains that type of that time of year, couldn't absorb any more. So instead of sponging it in, it expelled the water. The water goes coursing through the main cave, outside the cave, then coursing into it, forced by gravity and by all these little slits inside the mountain. And the boys who'd gone into about two and a half, three miles in, on their way out, it was a like team-building excursion. They go on the way out. Suddenly, they see that their exit is blocked. And they had no way of knowing that they would be marooned inside this cave. Nobody knew where they were. It took a while to figure it out. Anyway, fast forward a couple of weeks. They've been in there. These British guys find them. There's this whole international effort to try to rescue them. And it was so much more complex than even we knew when we were reporting about it on the ground. Um and, I mean, we can get to how they did it a little bit later, but, uh, you know, it, it is, for me, it's kind of, I, I love the story because it, it presents rescuers with an unbelievably challenging problem that almost had no solution, and somehow it was ultimately solved, but just the complexity of it, the international nature of it, the farness of it, was just the makings. Everybody knew at the time that this could either go really, really well or really, really yeah. badly. Yes. Yes. And, you know, part of why uh, I wanted to talk to you is one of the coping mechanisms that the coach for those 12 kids introduced in that in that awful scenario was meditation. So what, what was it, what, what kind of meditation was he teaching them? And do we have a sense of how it impacted the kids? So th the boys had. So it's really interesting. And, and I didn't know this at the time, but this is through um, the reporting that I did in the book. Uh, once I was actually reporting the book, not for ABC News. Um, it's incredible the degree to which the temple was a part of these boys' lives. The Buddhist temple. The Buddhist temple, a Wat, it's called a Wat in, in Thai. Um, Wat Doi Wow is this one. And so it's almost something that they do on weekends. It, it, it's like, you know... Like a church almost, or like a synagogue. But the people do they go and they go have, meditate, or is it more like a cultural center? It's a cultural center, but they all learn how to meditate. And many of them had been apprentice monks even before mm. they went into the cave. And, you know, not for long, for a couple of days or at a time. But they do learn the rudiments of meditation. And so a lot of them already knew mindfulness and breathing when they went in. But what the coach did, who had spent a decade as a Buddhist monk, honing meditation honing the craft and the practice, what he did is he realized that they were totally screwed and probably facing death. Um, and so he kept them active, kept them digging and trying to find an alternate exit, even though he knew it wouldn't happen. And every night and day, he would gather them together and he would lead them through mindfulness, breathing and meditation. And sometimes it would be uh, with chance and sometimes it would just be mindfulness. I didn't know he had been a monk for a decade. A decade. He's a young guy. He's 25 years old. It's it's kind of a sad story. He's one of the people who, in northern Thailand, there's a whole um, segment of society that are stateless. Um, and they're from a people that lives... And this is the original Golden Triangle. And this Golden Triangle area between Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos. Active in the drug trade. Active in the drug trade. Opium. Opium. Um, that's why it was originally called the Golden Triangle by the CIA in the 50s and 60s. Thailand really cracked down on the opium trade, but what has flourished since is human trafficking. Mm. And so now the biggest trade plied is uh, women and, and possible uh, slaves 
um, from the much poorer countries into Thailand and then elsewhere into Asia. And so everywhere, and we're digressing, but um, all along the route from Maesai, which is the town where this cave is, which is snug up against the border with Myanmar, um, 20 miles south are these checkpoints, and that's what they're going for. They're looking for human smugglers mm. um, and, and human traffickers with you know, their their cargo, quote-unquote, which but is humans. You said there was some sort of sad story about him having become a monk? So he became – sorry, thank you for bringing me back. That's my job. That's his job. He's good at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Coach Ake, as he's known um, – was part of the stateless minority living in northern Thailand. Um, and his parents were pretty poor, and a plague, and we still don't know what, swept through his village uh, when he was 10 years old, so about 15 years ago. And it killed both his parents and his brother. And so within weeks, he was orphaned. And his aunt took him in, and as happens a lot in that part of the world, especially in Thailand, um, families feel that their children, especially if they're poor, can get a better education if they enroll them in a monastery as monks than they could otherwise, because otherwise they'd have to be forced to work always and not go to school at all. So Coach Ake was sent to this monastery where he spent the better part of a decade. I think he was 12. And not, you know, he you do some really awful menial jobs, but they also teach you uh, language, arithmetic, uh, meditation, um, and there's also a practice which helped them, which is part of the whole priesthood in Thailand, which is really, I think it's, it is the original older version tradition of Buddhism, um, which is that desire is one of the roots of all evil, obviously, right? And it's if, if you can curb desire, you can better work on your practice of meditation and Buddhism in general. So they ate they didn't eat after a big noontime meal. They had an early morning breakfast and then a noontime meal. So all of the monks, including Coach Ake, were used to eating one meal and then being hungry the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for a decade, he'd spent life understanding hunger. And once you understand hunger after a while and basically temporary fasting, you can control it because you're used to it. And so I believe, and this is what we know, is that it it helped him sort of understand what they were going through in the cave. Although obviously in Buddhism, you know, deprivation to a certain degree is okay, but they don't deal with real terrible self-flagellation. So you wouldn't starve yourself for 10 days like they did. But at least he had a basic understanding of what it's like to endure a little bit of suffering um, and he probably knew what a lot of suffering was since he'd lost his parents yeah. and, you know, had worked really hard since an early age in the monastery. So the coach was heavily criticized during all of this for leading the kids into what could have been a death trap. Is it your view after having done all of this reporting and writing that, that he got a bad rap? In my reporting, I learned that, by the way, I just remembered, I'm sorry, folks, all those listening, um, <laughs> I was on air with Dan when the first boy was rescued. That's right. Hello from New York. I'm Dan Harris alongside Paula Ferris. And we are coming on the air with some great news about the rescue operation to save members of that young soccer team and their coach trapped in a cave in Thailand for more than two weeks. So let's go to ABC's Matt Gutman on the scene in Chiang Rai, Thailand. It was a stupendous day for these people, Dan and Paula. So and it was right one now. of the happiest. Yeah, you were psyched. We were we all were psyched. All psyched. Yes. We couldn't believe that it happened. And mm-hmm. it was happening on air on Dan's show on GMA. Well, not my show, but well, a show that I'm involved in, yes. He's, he's the host. Um, he's the you know anchor. And uh, it was one of the great moments I've experienced at TV. It, it was, was awesome. Happening live. It was great news. Yes. Only happy, and it was, you know, certainly something to write home about. But we digress. So even at that time, when the boys had gotten out, everybody was highly critical of the coach. But what we had learned, listen, whether or not a coach should take 12 kids alone into a cave miles in without alerting their parents, probably not the best idea. But this was something people did in these parts, right? They w- they would explore those caves. It was a rite of passage, especially for high school kids at the school where these kids went. So kids did do it, not that often. It was sort of a graduation thing, but it was definitely a rite of passage. And the park rangers with whom I spoke all knew that this kind of thing happened. But, of course, they didn't register with the park before they went in. The coach didn't have the kids tell their parents where they were going. So he does does deserve a little bit of criticism for that. However... 
The man who knew the cave best in the world is a Brit known as Vern Unsworth. Vernon Unsworth fell in love. He's a caver. He's a potholder from Lancaster, England, um, who used to explore the Yorkshire Dales, which is a an area laced with caves and potholes, as the British call them, uh, and all sorts of very interesting geographical and geological um, features. And he's now 63, and he's been caving his whole life. He had fallen in love with a woman who happened to live in a village called Maysai. Moved in with her, found out about this cave, and began exploring it back in 2013. An initial survey had been done of the cave back in 1987 by a pair of French surveyors, but it hadn't really been dealt with since then. And Verne committed himself. He was in love with his girlfriend, Tick. He was obsessed with the cave. And he had committed himself to learning this cave, along with a partner of his, better than anybody else in the world. He redid all of those surveys. He was supposed to go and finish one of his surveys the day after the boys went in. And he did go there, but as a rescuer that morning rather than as a caver. And so they were very lucky in that the person who knew the cave best in the whole world happened to be going in the very next day, was ready to go because he had all the stuff ready, uh, and happened to be in Maysai at the time that they were lost and was able to give rescuers, at least least initially, a pretty good idea of where they might be. And it turned out ultimately it was exactly where they were. Let me skip backwards a little bit. Why do I bring up Vern Unsworth? Because Vern told me it could, it would have happened to me. When the way the cave is, it's shaped like a Y, basically. So you go in, and there are a couple of different branches. They went to the left, which is the longer branch where, where there is more to explore. That's what he would have done. And there was no way to know that the cave was flooding once you'd passed a certain point. Mm-hmm. The only way to know is once you retrace your steps to go back out to the exit of the cave. Then you realize that the water flows in from the entrance, basically, um, and cuts you off. So he said, Matt, it could have happened to me. You know, I'm as an experienced caver as there is in the world. I've been doing it for 40 years. It would have happened to me. It's not the coach's fault. So what's the view of the coach now in Thailand after we've had time to, you know, is he still kind of a goat there or do people are people more sympathetic? He's lionized. Everybody really? He's great. Yeah, everybody is put that behind them. He's the guy who kept the kids alive through meditation, through discipline, through morale. Um, He's regarded very highly. What what do the kids say about, uh, you know, the various techniques he used, including meditation, to keep them calm and motivated and hopeful? How how did they describe, you know, how this stuff helped them? I'll give you an example. they loved Coach Ake before. He was everybody's favorite coach because he was a young guy. He taught the under-13 team, taught, coached. Um, and so when I was up there, it was one of the boys' birthdays. And we weren't quite sure where everybody was, but we went to go see Coach Ake. We went to the monastery because he'd gone back to be a monk again in order to say his thanks to the spirits of the cave and the gods. Well, not the gods, but the spirits of the cave specifically. Um, and so he did his period of service all of those kids showed up to be with him. Every time they celebrate anything, it's with him. They basically credit him with saving their lives. All of that stuff. And they don't, you know, it's it, it's the whole package of this young guy sticking with them, making sure they don't freak out, um, giving them the instruction to keep digging, to ration their lights and, you know, the way they drank and uh, protect themselves and stay together to keep warm. They basically credit him with everything, and their lives now revolve more around the temple and Buddhism, but specifically Coach Ake, than they ever have. Mm. Um, And so it's really sweet to see. The other amazing thing to all you parents out there, I mean, if something like that had happened to my kids, we would not let our child out of our sight. Mm -hmm. But in Mayside, there is such a sense of community that, and, and, and a sense that the boys need to be boys that when I went there, and it was uh, five weeks after they'd gotten out of the cave, and that night all the boys had ridden their bikes at night to Coach Aches in the monastery up the hill and around Maysai. They'd done an overnight bike ride around in the area um, just a few days before. Some kids were riding mopeds, like their parents, and I talked to one of the mothers about this. I'm like, how, what, what's the secret? She's like, if I don't let him be a boy... I'm going to lose him. And so it's interesting. It's just very different from our society. 
also it's safe there. Everybody knows them and everybody knew them before. And there's a real sense of community in this small town. Everybody was pulling for these boys and everybody was so elated when they got out. But also everybody understands that they need to keep doing these things Mm -hmm. or else they'll never recover. No, I think that's right. Just in our remaining time here, there's two things I want to ask you about. One is you said this before, and I don't want to give away the book, but um, you know, you 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 indicated that in your reporting, it, it became clear that the rescue, which was amazing to all of us in real time, actually was even more amazing and more complicated. Can you just give us a sense of what we didn't know? The rescuers were all convinced. Now we didn't know this as reporters, but the rescuers were all convinced. Okay, there were two options, right? The first option, which the Thai government wanted to go with, was to wait out the monsoon season and let the boys simply walk out the way they came in. The problem with that was, as the original divers realized, there was already only 15% oxygen in Chamber 9, which was this enclosed space, which is probably around the the size of the space that you and I are in right now. 15%. Anything lower than that, you start to lose cognitive ability, your lips turn blue. Already at 15 to 17%, you're losing some function. And it was only going down. The divers realized the swim in was so arduous, they wouldn't be able to resupply them with food. They also realized that the water was fluctuating and rising and they hadn't even hit the peak of monsoon mm-hmm. season. So at this point, the, the U.S. Special Operations Group, which is part of the Air Force, and the divers, and it was getting late, told the Thai government, they're like, listen, I know you want zero option. That can't happen. If we don't take the boys out now, before this next monsoon rain comes, they're all going to die. And if they don't die in this monsoon rain, they're going to asphyxiate to death. It's going to be a slow strangulation. And if that doesn't happen, they're going to starve to death because we can't feed them for 100 days. You have to pull them out, and you got to pull them out now. You have 36 hours before those rains come. we got to get this mission going. If you don't, they will die. Okay? How many can you save? Some. What do you mean some? The divers themselves, they didn't tell the Thai government explicitly. But when they first started doing the plans, they thought 80% would die during the extraction. 80%. That means, you know, 9 out of the 12 boys. Why? I mean, how? Because only there were only basically four people in the world, it turned out to be six, who could actually complete this dive in and out without getting to serious trouble. The Thai Navy SEALs who did it? Now I'm getting one stuff of them, away. One of them died. One of them died, but in a different part of the dive. But the other guys ran out of air. Because you can't resupply. There's uh, nothing in there. It is literally like being on an alien planet. In fact, the, the U.S. Special uh, Ops Air Force guy was like, it would be easier to communicate with people on the moon than it would be to the boys and anybody else in Chamber 9. There was no physical way on the planet to pass a message that deep into a cave that far into the Earth. So they were literally marooned as far into the world as you could possibly imagine with no way to resupply them. So the the divers themselves barely made it in and out. And how are they going to haul 120 pounds a kid? And the kids weren't going to be able to swim because they could barely swim. So they had to knock them out. They sedated them so heavily that they could have amputated an arm and the kids would have noticed. Wow. So, and they had to re... Were they given propofol or something like that? Close. They gave them ketamine. Propofol wow. risks death, as we know from Michael Jackson. I actually explicitly talk about that in the book. So they gave them massive doses of ketamine. But Which is a horse triangle or a cat, cat tranquilizer? One of those two. It Both? is, but it's, it's a very commonly used drug in emergency rooms as well. It's also very commonly available in developing countries like Thailand. So they had to figure out not only what they could use, but what they could find yeah, in Thailand. Yeah. So they dose them up on ketamine. That's what they would do. And then haul them out. Now, they're wearing full face masks. But as I described earlier, the space that they were working in sometimes was, you know, knee high. And so the kids' masks were getting bumped around. But they couldn't even tell because it was so dark. You wouldn't be able to see. So they were terrified that these kids were drowned to death on the way out. So that everything was conspiring against them. So the Thai government's like, all right, well, what do you see as a successful mission? And the U.S. major who was basically running the operation um, with the help, with he had the British and, and foreign divers as the actual people who were going to implement it. He said, listen, if we get one boy home to his parents, I personally would consider that a success. 
Mind you, the Thai government was telling the whole country and the world that they're offering a zero-risk option, which means all of the boys would be rescued. Mm. And they're telling them that success would be one live boy. So the divers were convinced they could get themselves out of the cave. They were convinced they could get the boys' physical bodies out of the cave. They were not convinced they could get the boys out of the cave alive. Um, So... Glad it worked and glad that I did not have a child in that cave. <laughs> um, so d- to talk about a crazy mission, you wrote this book in how many weeks? I wrote the first manuscript in 24 days. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's California, so everybody has a little guest house. And uh, my family went off on the vacation that we were supposed to go to, to Vermont with family. Uh, and the dog and I moved out to this little office and I slept there, and I took my meals there, and for 24 days, I didn't leave the house except to walk the dog. Wow. And, uh, and I called, you know, because was, I was reporting it. I didn't know any, everything that you just heard, I did not know until I started writing and In these 24 the days? Yes. So you were writing and reporting at the same time? Correct. That's even crazier. Yeah. So I was, I had conversations with Thailand, and sometimes I had to have a translator on the phone simultaneously, which was a nightmare, but thank you, uh to WhatsApp and to Line and all these other applications out there because otherwise we couldn't do it. Um, I was talking to Malta where there was one diver, uh, Great Britain, um, Belgium, Finland, Australia, and where else? Oh, and, and then my guy in Israel. And you traveled to, to Thailand? So I wrote the manuscript and then I went to Thailand to do my third trip to report for, for the book. Um, the first trip was for ABC. The second trip was also. So I did reporting then. And then I went again for a third reporting trip. And uh, and I literally was filling in blanks. I would do the interviews. I'd jump back. I'd rewrite, like, in the car as I'm going. So it was super intense. And then, I, you know, people probably don't know, but there are multiple passes. So you, you basically do four versions of the book. And you keep updating and refining it as you go along. Generally, they want you to be done by the first or second version. But, you know, I kept getting new stuff in. And the more, the more I became exposed to people who were involved, the more connections I made. And so I ended up having this network of dozens of people. And uh, it, it was amazing for me because it was so, you know, it's everything that is different from what we do on the nightly news or GMA or those stories where so much gets left on the cutting room floor. In this case, nothing did. Mm -hmm. And I could get as deep into the gizzards of people's (laughs) lives and their stories as I possibly wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, And I could tell every single juicy detail. (laughs) And so I loved it. I I reveled in every minute of those agonizing 20-hour days. I was going to say, because what you were describing sounds horrible to me. Not the the product, but the the process. Did you take any time to meditate during those 24 days? Um, I I did mindfulness breathing. I wouldn't say I meditated. But I was so exhausted when it was over that it took me, how long, babe, a month? I just, all I wanted to do was sleep. I've never been so tired <laughs> in my entire life. I was narcoleptic. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank What's you. the name of the book again? The Boys in the Cave. The Boys in the Cave. Deep Inside the Impossible Mission in Thailand. Rescue. Possible Rescue in Thailand. I'm messing up my own title. It's, I, don't, I don't know the subtitle. The Boys in the person. Cave, people, yes. on Amazon. Available everywhere. Um, congratulations. I'm mean, seriously, it's, a, it's an incredible achievement. Um, and you were a great guest. So thank, thank you. you. It was fun. Appreciate it. It was really fun. Fun for me, too. Thanks, man. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.